So this morning we're continuing with our sermon series through the book of First Thessalonians, and if you've got a Bible, you might like to turn to First Thessalonians. Uh, we're going to have a look at chapter two uh, this morning. While you're doing that, um, I want you to imagine that you're walking down the mall, and uh, somebody approaches you with a clipboard and says to you, "Congratulations, you are a winner in our new sweepstake." Or perhaps they approach you and say, would you like to win a free holiday? Or perhaps you're sat at home and you get an SMS on your phone to tell you that you've won the lottery. Again, I must be one of the most luckiest people in the world. I've won the UK lottery at least six times over the past four months. What, what is your first reaction when you get that SMS or you get that phone call or someone approaches you? What's the catch? That's right, exactly that. What, what is the catch? Uh, how much am I going to have to pay for this free holiday? How many timeshare presentations am I going to have to sit through before I get 25% off this uh, free holiday scheme? Well, you know, not much has actually changed in 2,000 years. Because 2,000 years ago, the ancient world had its fair share of traveling salesmen and wandering preachers. Uh, people would stand up in the marketplace and they would talk about the newest philosophy or the newest wisdom or the newest meditation technique or whatever. And after a while, people had the same response that you and I have towards people holding clipboards in the mall. They waited for the catch, because there usually was one. They waited for the salesman to start handing around his hat and uh, collecting money. Or they waited for him to single out an attractive-looking young lady in the audience and invite her for some private lessons after the presentation. Uh, certainly, they expected the traveling salesman would try and gain a name for himself and become well-liked around town. And they also knew that he wouldn't hang around very long, that he'd soon be off to the next city. And so when the Apostle Paul arrives in the city of Thessalonica in AD 50 with the news that Jesus of Nazareth was actually the long-awaited Messiah, Many people sat back and cynically said, here we go again. It's timeshare. Uh, he's going to tell you that you've won a lovely holiday on the Mediterranean, but actually it's a shack down by the Dead Sea. We've heard it all before. And then when Paul suddenly had to leave the city after some persecution, after just a few weeks, people said, there you go, you see, we told you that there was nothing in it. We told you that he's just another one of those phony teachers who tramp up and down the Ignatian way. He's insincere. He doesn't believe three quarters of what he teaches. He's only in it for what he can get in terms of money or sex or power or fame. Don't you see the minute that persecution arose, he left you. He's abandoned you. He's not concerned about you. He's only concerned about himself. His message didn't mean very much did it. And so in chapter 2 of this letter to the Thessalonians, Paul writes to these young Christians and he defends himself and he describes his ministry among them. He says to them, you know, 
You remember what it was like. You know how I lived among you. Let's have a look from verse 1 of chapter 2. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not a failure. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. For the appeal we make doesn't spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. You know we never use flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or from anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you'd become so dear to us. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. Let's ask God's blessing on his word. Lord Jesus, we pray that you, through your Holy Spirit, would take your word and apply it deeply into our hearts and our lives. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So as I said, around 50 A.D., Paul arrived at the city of Thessalonica, which still exists today in modern Greece, and he and his companions conducted what we would call an evangelistic campaign. It wasn't a very ostentatious campaign. He didn't hire out a huge venue uh, or set up a tent, no printed media, no television adverts, no radio interviews. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with those things, but this was a fairly low-key mission, three Saturday mornings sharing the gospel in the local synagogue. But it was a mission of personal, tender, caring evangelism conducted out of genuine love. And it was very effective as well. Paul begins this chapter by saying, you know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not a failure. Or as the updated NIV puts it, our visit to you was not without results. 
In fact, in Acts chapter 17, uh, Luke, who tells us of this mission, puts it this way. He says that after just three weeks of teaching in the synagogue, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. So Paul's gospel-sharing efforts were a success. You know, and this, this comes to us with such good timing, because as a congregation, as a church, we're about to start an evangelistic effort, a gospel-sharing effort. You know, in two weeks' time, we're going to be starting our Alpha course. So again, nothing particularly ostentatious or ornate, uh, just getting together for a few weeks to share a meal, watch a DVD, ask some questions. And yet we hope and pray that it will not be a failure, that it will have some results. Of course, it's very difficult to quantify results when it comes to an evangelistic effort. And yet we can say that Paul's gospel-sharing effort was a success. And if we were to ask the question, why? Why was Paul's gospel-sharing so effective? The answer lies in three fundamental commitments that Paul held. And we see these commitments in this passage. Paul was committed to the gospel, he was committed to holiness, and he was committed to people. And if we want to see gospel expansion as a church, not just at Alpha, but all of our other efforts too, then I believe that we need to share these commitments. And we're going to have a look at them one at a time. So firstly, effective gospel sharing depends on a commitment to the gospel. Paul was passionately committed to this gospel, and you can see that when you look at the historical context which Paul gives us in verse 2. He says, We'd previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. So Paul had come to Thessalonica from Philippi, and you'll remember what happened in Philippi. Paul and Silas are stripped, they're beaten, they're, they're thrown into prison, their feet are put in stocks, and that was just extremely physically painful, as well as very humiliating as well. Uh, they'd been flogged naked in public um, without a trial, despite the fact that they were Roman citizens. You didn't treat Roman citizens in that way. You treated the lowest levels of society in that way. And so Paul and Silas experienced both physical suffering as well as deep humiliation. And then they leave Philippi and they go on to Thessalonica. Now, In his commentary on these verses, Tom Wright makes a very important point. He says, if someone does something and gets paid handsomely for it, the next time they do it, we can assume that part of the reason is the money. But if they do something and find themselves beaten up and thrown into jail, the next time they do it, we rightly assume that they have some reason so compelling that it will make them carry on, even though they run the same risk. And that was true in Paul's life. There was something so compelling that he was prepared to preach the gospel in Thessalonica, even despite persecution. 
And I think as we read on in these verses, we see two clear reasons why Paul was so committed to this gospel. The first reason relates to how Paul viewed the gospel. Paul was committed to the gospel because of how he saw the gospel. Do you notice how Paul describes the gospel in these verses? Three times in these verses, he describes it as the gospel of God. Verse 2, we dared to tell you his gospel, literally the gospel of God. Verse 8, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God. And verse 9, we preached the gospel of God to you. And then twice in one verse, Paul refers to his message as the word of God. Verse 13, we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. We're used to the Old Testament prophets announcing, this is the word of the Lord, or the word of the Lord came to me, or thus saith the Lord. Here in the New Testament, then, we've got a similar claim that these are not just human words, but these are the very words of God. And God's word is powerful and effective. Notice here in verse 13, Paul describes the gospel as the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. And there's that wonderful progression in this verse as well. We read that they heard the word, they received the word, they accepted the word, they believed the word, and the word of God changed them. It was at work in them. Now this book that we hold is powerful. The writer to the Hebrews reminds us, the word of God is alive and active sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. God's word is powerful. I remember hearing about a man who'd recently become a Christian, and uh, one of his friends was scoffing at his newfound faith. Uh, he said to him, you don't really believe the Bible, do you? You don't really believe that Jesus turned water into wine. The man replied to his friend, Well, I, I don't know if he changed water into wine, but I do know he can change beer into furniture. And he explained to his friend how he'd become a Christian, having been an alcoholic, and how God had transformed his life, and he'd given up drinking, and the money that he was spending on beer, he was using to buy furniture and other things for his new life. Nicky Gumbel is a pastor of a church in England, and he tells the story of a man called Earl Smith. Earl Smith is the cousin of a man called Fred Smith. Uh, Fred Smith is the person behind Federal Express, the courier company. He's a very wealthy man. Fred Smith is so wealthy that even his cousin Earl was very wealthy. In fact, Earl was too wealthy for his own good. He spent all of his money... And then he became addicted to drugs, first of all soft drugs and then hard drugs. Uh, and he became more and more addicted and he became very ill, in fact. He ended up in hospital. Uh, by the age of 30, he was doing his body so much damage that he ended up in hospital and was very sick indeed. 
And while he was in hospital, a Christian came to visit him and said, Earl, look, I've brought you a New Testament to read. Well, Earl was thrilled because the paper in the New Testament was just thin enough for rolling cigarettes. And so Earl smoked his way through Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And when he got to John's Gospel, he stopped smoking and he started reading. And he was fascinated by what he read there. Indeed, as a result of reading John's Gospel, he became a Christian. At the time, he was seeing a psychologist at the hospital. The psychologist was a woman named Tommy. Uh, She was a very beautiful woman, uh, highly intelligent. She had many degrees. Uh, She'd been very successful in her career. She'd been a model at one time, was very successful as a model. Now she was successful as a psychologist, and she couldn't make Earl out. She kept on saying to Earl, you know, I don't understand you. Your life is a complete mess. She said, I've got everything. I'm successful. I'm rich. I'm beautiful. And then she said, I'm deeply unhappy with my life. But look at you. Your life's a complete mess, and yet you seem to have this inner joy, this radiance. And so he said to her, well, the difference is Jesus. And then he led her to faith in Christ, and then he married her. (laughs) And uh, Earl and Tommy were at Bible College with Nicky Gumbel, and he would often describe how the Gospel of John changed his life completely. God's Word is powerful. We don't have to be ashamed of it or embarrassed about proclaiming it. As John Stott puts it in his commentary, we mustn't be satisfied with rumors about God as a substitute for good news from God. We've got a powerful message to share in which we can have full confidence. And so perhaps before we continue, we we should ask ourselves more personally, do I receive the gospel? And do I accept it? And do I believe it as the word of God? Do, Do I read it? Do I meditate on it? Do I study it? Do I apply it and do I obey it? Paul had a passionate commitment to the gospel because he knew it wasn't just anyone's word. It was the word of God. And secondly, Paul had a radical commitment to the gospel because of how he viewed himself. Verse 4, he says, We speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God who tests our heart. The picture that Paul uses here is of a steward. And a steward is someone who has been entrusted with someone else's property. It's not his own. At the moment, I am a steward of an Audi A4. Uh, just in case some of you have been driving, you see me driving it around, it's not mine, it belongs to a friend of mine who's gone to America, and he's entrusted his car into my hands. Uh, so far, I've had to replace a battery and one light bulb, and there's another light bulb that needs changing as well. But my friend trusts me and has entrusted me. And notice what Paul says here. He says something similar. He speaks as one who's been approved and tested by God, or tested by God, approved by God, trusted by God, and is seeking to please God who tests his heart. And the same is true of you and me this morning, that God has entrusted us 
with the gospel. We are stewards of the gospel. And as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 4, it is required that those who've been given a trust must prove faithful. Not enough simply to keep the faith, we have to pass it on. We've been trusted as stewards as well as heralds. Paul speaks about proclaiming the gospel. He says, we dared to tell you his gospel. We preached the gospel of God to you. We've got the privilege of proclaiming the gospel as heralds. Some of you will know the name of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a minister in London in the last century. I always presumed that he'd got a doctorate in theology, but he really was a doctor, doctor, uh, a medical doctor. Uh, he was a student at St. Bartholomew's Hospital in London. In 1921, he became assistant to the royal physician, Sir Thomas Horder. After he graduated, he had a very successful practice in Harley Street, which was the place to be as a doctor in London. But after just two years, he gave all of that up, and he became a minister. At one point in his life, someone asked him, how could you give up everything and become a minister? And Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones famously replied, I gave up nothing. I received everything. I counted the highest honor that God can confer on any man to call him to be a herald of the gospel. Perhaps you are a doctor this morning, or an architect, or an engineer, or a teacher, or a stay-at-home mom, or a stay-at-home dad, a retiree. You are also this morning a herald of the gospel. There is no higher honor that God can confer on us. Some of us get to do this as our work, and others of us get to do it at work. But we are heralds of the gospel. It doesn't even have to be anything big. It can be something simple as taking that card on your seat and giving it to a friend or family member in this coming week. And so Paul was committed to the word of God because he understood it to be the word of God and he understood himself to be a herald of the gospel. But secondly, effective gospel sharing depends on a commitment to holiness. And again, we see this in Paul's life, in particular in his relation to the Thessalonians. As I mentioned in this passage, he's, he's explaining to them how they don't have to listen to the critics around them. He, he describes his ministry among them. And he begins by saying, you know. That's how he begins in verse 1. And he goes on three other times to say, you know, you know. In other words, there was an openness and honesty about Paul's ministry that Paul could acknowledge, that the Thessalonians themselves could acknowledge, and that even God could acknowledge. In verse 4, Paul says, God is our witness. Paul exercised his ministry in the city with just openness, before people, before God, because he had nothing to hide, nothing to be ashamed of, nothing to conceal. And in the passage, he, he mentions a number of things that he didn't do in his ministry, and we'll just run through these quickly. But in verse 3, he says, the, the appeal we make doesn't spring from error. He, he's preaching God's gospel, which is true. 
He says it doesn't come from impure motives. Uh, that word can refer primarily to sexual immorality. And as I said, a lot of religious leaders or religious uh, con men in those days tried to seduce members of the opposite sex. Paul says we didn't do that, nor did we have any other impure motives. He said we're not trying to trick you. And we'll see next week that Paul was completely upfront about the gospel. He said to them, it's going to involve suffering. It's going to involve persecution. He didn't pretend that the Christian faith was going to be a bed of roses. Verse 5, he says, we never used flattery, an outward show of an affection, uh, saying the right things to try and get people to do things. He didn't do that. Nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. Spend just a a moment on this one. Uh, Paul certainly wasn't preaching for what he could get out of it. Uh, In fact, quite the opposite. If you look at verse 9, he says, Surely you remember our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. And Some of you will know that Paul's occupation was a tent maker, working with leather and canvas, making tents. And he said that he worked night and day to support himself and in between share the gospel with the Thessalonians so that he wouldn't have to rely on them for financial support. Now, Paul mostly relied on churches to support him financially so he could be a full-time preacher, but he had a very important principle, and it was this, that Paul would accept financial assistance from established churches, but he would never ask for money from non-Christians or from new churches because he wanted to be able to offer the gospel free of charge, to say salvation is a free gift. I want to preach it to you free of charge. And also so that there would be never any question about his motives for preaching. Paul says we didn't put put on a mask to cover up greed. And in verse 6, he says, we weren't looking for praise from people, not from you or from anyone else. I'm sure the Thessalonians did praise Paul and were grateful for his ministry, just as we're grateful for Bible teachers and preachers and writers. But that wasn't the reason that Paul was preaching. In verse 4, he says, we're not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. Ultimately, Paul lived out his life in front of an audience of one. Well, in contrast to how he didn't behave, Paul goes on to describe how he did behave among them in verse 10. He says, You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. And while we shouldn't separate out those concepts too much, uh, one writer points out that holy refers to our being pleasing to God. Righteous refers to our relationship with one another. And blameless is to our public reputation. One writer asks this disturbing question. He asks, if we were to describe ourselves like this, would anyone recognize who we were talking about? (laughs) This week I was reading Hebrews chapter 12 where the writer says, Make every effort to be holy, because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. 
And Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 7 and says, Let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. And we've seen in these verses then how holiness means turning away from certain things and turning towards other things, to dying to a certain way of life and living to a new kind of life. Not in order to be saved. We've seen that already in this series. That's something that God alone does for us through the death of his son on the cross. But once we are saved, as Paul says in verse 12, we're to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and into his glory. Paul summarizes his approach to holiness in sharing the gospel in in 2 Corinthians. He writes these words. He says, since through God's mercy we have this ministry of sharing the gospel, we don't lose heart. Rather, we've renounced secret and shameful ways. We don't use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. You know, maybe our temptations don't lie in the area of preaching the gospel or distorting the gospel. All of us struggle in all sorts of different ways. But God calls us to holiness this morning, to renounce certain things. In fact, if you're struggling with something, it might be worth saying those words aloud as you struggle with that sin. Maybe you struggle with swearing or with lust or with anger. And just when you're tempted in that direction, just say, either quietly or loud, I renounce that. I renounce that. And then not just creating a vacuum, but then stepping into righteousness, reading God's word, fellowshipping with one another, worshipping God. We're called to holiness because it's out of holiness that effective gospel sharing comes. And thirdly, finally, effective gospel sharing depends on a commitment to people. Deep commitment to people. And we see that in Paul's life. Here was a group of strangers, men and women in a foreign city. Paul meets with them. He preaches the gospel to them. And they become brothers and sisters. And we see Paul's deep pastoral heart here. He uses two very beautiful pictures to describe this loving commitment to the Thessalonians. He begins by using the highest example of selfless love that the world knows a mother with her children. Verse 7. We were gentle among you like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you'd become so dear to us. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at Christian love and we spoke about the fact that it's action. In fact, I think I emphasized action quite a lot, but I'm happy to amend that slightly in view of what Paul says here, that Christian love also affects our emotions. He says, you know, we loved you. You became dear to us. There is a a, a bond of, of Christian love. But of course, that emotion of love finds practical expression too, just as a mother's love does. I remember hearing about a teacher who was trying to teach fractions to a little girl, and she said to her, if you were at home with your mom and there was one piece of cake left after supper, um, how much would you get? And the little girl replied, I'd get one piece. 
And the teacher says, don't, don't you mean you'd get one half? And the little girl replied, no, my mom would say, I'm not feeling very hungry tonight. You have the piece of cake. <laughs> Moms are well known for their selfless, giving love. And Paul says, we didn't just share the gospel with you. We, we shared our lives too. We welcomed you into our home, into our work, into our hearts. And then Paul gives a second picture too, not just of a mother's love, but of a father's love from verse 11. For you know that we dealt with you as a father deals with his own children. Encouraging. Come on, you can do it. Comforting. Picking you up and dusting you off after you've fallen. Urging you, inspiring you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and into his glory. The question for us is, do, do we have a deep commitment to people? Or do we tend to find people as irritations? So often we can get just caught, so caught up in our own lives, in the life of our family, that we forget people around us. Um, I think of Jesus looking at the crowds and, and, and be, being compassionate towards them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Or even in the book of Jonah, we read that God is angry with a city that is violent and evil. And yet at the end of it, God says to Jonah, shouldn't I have compassion on this city? Maybe we get irritated with people around us or we get distressed by things going on in our nation. And yet shouldn't there be a deep commitment and concern within us for people to know the gospel, the good news of Jesus? And so if effective evangelism, effective gospel sharing involves a commitment to the gospel, a commitment to holiness, and a commitment to other people. A few weeks ago, I mentioned Billy Graham in a sermon. In fact, I read a section of Billy Graham's sermon as part of my sermon. And afterwards, I thought to myself, I don't actually know that much about him. I know his name, but I don't know too much about him. And so I went out and bought myself an, uh, one of um, the many biographies that's been written on his life. And the more I read about him, the more interested I was in how, how was he so effective in gospel sharing. While I was reading up on him, I also watched a couple of YouTube videos of, of his sermons. And it was so interesting because by human standards, his sermons weren't particularly impressive. There were no brilliant illustrations. There were no exciting stories. There were no side-splitting jokes. And yet at the end of a very simple and straightforward gospel message, when he said, I invite you to get up out of your seat and come forward, people did so by the thousands. And they came into a saving relationship with Jesus. Why? Well, the more I read about Billy Graham, the more convinced I am that Billy Graham shared Paul's commitments. He was committed to the gospel. He would fearlessly stand up and say over and over again, the Bible says, without any apology or even explanation. He was committed to holiness. Very early on in his ministry, he sat down with the other men who were part of his organization, and they got some ground rules in terms of how they would act in terms of money, how they would act towards members of the opposite sex. Simple things like Billy Graham wouldn't even drive in a car with a woman alone. And they did that because they didn't want to be blown out of the water 
as so many other evangelists had been. He had a commitment to holiness, and he certainly had a commitment to people. And if we want to be effective in gospel sharing, uh, in our church, in our own personal lives, we need these commitments too. Passionate commitment to God's Word. A commitment to keep it, to study it, to expound it, to apply it, to proclaim it, to obey it. Passionate commitment to holiness, to be clean vessels that God can use and a passionate commitment to people uh, to love the world that Jesus died for.